0: Now, uh, those of you that know something about uh, Austrian economics know that this uh, title of mine, Competition Entrepreneurship, is the title of the the 1973 book that Israel Kirzner did. Uh, Kirzner is the source for just about everything that I'm going to say in this particular uh, lecture. Uh, Kirzner, of course, uh, gives credit, uh, and in my judgment, I think uh, uh, probably too much credit uh, to uh, what Mises had to say, especially in human action, uh, on entrepreneurship as the basis for his own work. I think that uh, uh, even though uh, Israel's work uh, is certainly Misesian, uh, he, has, he deserves a lot of credit for having developed uh, the notion of entrepreneurship and the competitive market process. And so this is uh, a lecture, if you will, on Kersnerian, uh economics. I want to begin, um, uh, well, first of all, let me just say, uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about market process. I want to avoid a misunderstanding here. Uh, there's a group at George Mason University uh, that calls itself uh, market process uh, uh, analysts, and uh, I know uh, all of them, and all of them uh, have been known to drink beer with me. And uh, I'm, I'm on uh, pretty uh, good terms with all of them. but. Some of them, some of the time, uh, do things under the rubric of uh, market process uh, which I just simply don't understand, Uh, hermeneutics being the most notorious example. So I want to, even though I'm going to use the term uh, market process, I want to dissociate myself from the George Mason, well, uh, version X of the George Mason uh, variant of uh, market process. Market process, as Kirzner would have it and as I look at it, is the process by which equilibrium is pursued in markets. That's what it's all about. The chief uh, uh, objection that uh, market process uh, analysis has against um, curve bending, equation jockeying, neoclassical economics is that it is all about equilibrium states. And whereas that may be an interesting, and sometimes even relevant uh, concern, I mean, after all, I did write an intermediate price theory text, was which is uh, impenitently uh, uh, neoclassical, uh, and I did it only because that's what sells. I must confess. <laughs> uh, uh, the um, uh, I, lo- I lost track of the thought that I was uh, that the statement that I was going to make uh, just at, at that point. Uh, But anyway, uh, neoclassical economics may have something good that can be said about it. There are enough people who say good things about it. There are many more people who claim more for it that can reasonably be claimed for it. So uh, I'm going to uh, uh, focus on that which uh, neoclassical curve bending economics says absolutely nothing about. And that is the process by which we get from one equilibrium to another, or more generally, the process uh, uh, by which we uh, cope with disequilibrium states as we pursue uh, situations of equilibrium which we never, in fact, will uh, attain. I need some definitions. A market, a market for X, say. I like to define as merely the set of production and exchange transactions of people regarding that that product, X. The free market system, uh, I like to define, using Kirzner's words, as that set of institutions which converts unperceived opportunities into reality by the alertness of entrepreneurs. Now, the, the case for the free market system, as I uh, uh, said in, uh, in discussion this morning, really has nothing at all to do with the equi-marginal conditions of uh, traditional uh, welfare economic theory. All of the e- uh, equalities of this and that at the margin are really irrelevant to a person who takes a market pro- uh, process perspective. You know how that works. Uh, we ca- the standard welfare theory says that everything looks just fine, uh, providing that we have perfect competition and no externalities, constant returns to scale, and maybe a few that I've forgotten to list. And inasmuch as as it's obvious that those conditions don't hold, then it's obvious that we are constantly beset by market failure. And so we can forget the market as having any uh, redeeming uh, social significance whatsoever. That's, that's the, the too hasty conclusion of uh, many people, many uh, economists uh, who deal in, uh, uh, in in microeconomic theory. I can remember at UCLA, um, <clears throat> uh, there was a, while he's still there, uh, uh, Professor Ellickson, who was an econometrician, I remember hearing him uh, discuss the the uh, models that Armin Elchin liked to use. And uh, these models were disparaged as being Oh, just perfect competition models, and we know that perfect competition is totally irrelevant. Therefore, we can totally ignore everything that Armin has to say, or at least his uh, his policy prescriptions that follow from what he has to say. I'm not creating a straw man here. There really are economists, and many of them, who who use the equimarginal conditions uh, uh, as uh, the sine qua non of an effect uh, of uh, efficacious. Uh, market uh, system, and if we don't have uh, the equimarginal marginal conditions for whatever reason, then the market is worthless. That's, I, I claim that that's, that that's a commonly held view in the economics profession. The market process view of the case for the free market is really quite simple. It was expressed by Kirzner many times, but uh, I'm going to use the words that he used in an article in, the, uh, in um, Arthur Selden's journal. The, economic affairs journal, Israel said that the, the case for the free market is simply that it, within the free market, there is the, the best chance for rapid uh, discovery of and correction of economic error. Quite apart from the existence of perfect competition or the absence of externalities or anything else. Within the context of voluntary exchange, it is simply within people's interests to be alert to things that aren't right and that can be put right or put better. Uh, it is in people's interest merely because they profit from it. And it is uh, from, from, that, uh, from being alert to such situations and then acting on what they perceive. And it is that profit that they perceive that they can grasp and keep as a payoff from this alertness and from this action, that again, to use Israel's words, switches on, or is the the incentive for the incentive behind the alertness itself. Um, the focus of uh, of orthodox theory is on the conditions that uh, must hold if 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 everything is is to fit together right, but. Uh, Describing the conditions that must hold in order for everything to fit together in some sort of general equilibrium state, about which I'll have more to say when I give my equilibrium lecture at 8 o'clock on Wednesday, uh, are really irrelevant to anything because uh, what uh, there are no falsifiable statements that come out of uh, uh, such uh, analysis at all that I, that I can uh, think of. Um, Rather than uh, trying to list the conditions that must exist for everything to uh, fit well together, it is more interesting uh, to repeat the point in different words to, descri- uh, to uh, understand the actual movements and actions that people take within the context of a voluntary exchange setting. Now, competition, there's a much abused word. I can remember the first economics class I took at Clark University, Uh, uh, I used Samuelson's, I think it was Samuelson's, I'll tell you how old I am now, it was Samuelson's second edition (laughs) and it it just came out. Um, And uh, (laughs) um, the um, uh, professor went to great lengths to point out that the use of the word competition by professional economists was totally different from the use of the word competition by uh, the man on the street. And I remember thinking at the time that the man on the street was right, uh, but I was only a sophomore and I didn't have the guts to say so, and I had degrees to get, and so I played the game. Um, in market process analysis, the word competition means rivalry. it, it is. It is the successive efforts of profit-seeking people, profit-seeking transactors, to outstrip one another in providing attractive buying or selling opportunities to others. That's the use of the term competition uh, in this lecture and in market process analysis in general. Uh, In equilibrium, of course, there are no profit opportunities. Which explains why uh, uh, the perfectly uh, competitive uh, model, in which, there, which is an equilibrium model in which there are no profit opportunities, is totally silent on the role of entrepreneurship. Uh, market process analysis, in other words, is uh, necessarily an analysis that has to do with disequilibrium. Now, let me describe the characteristics of disequilibrium that are of concern in this this, uh, analysis. There exists, uh, in disequilibrium, there exists uh, potential sellers who are unaware of sufficiently eager buyers uh, to make selling some or selling more of what these potential sellers are ready to sell worthwhile. So the The potential sellers simply don't know of opportunities to sell or opportunities to sell more. Potential buyers are unaware of sufficiently eager sellers to make it worthwhile to buy some or to buy more of what it is that they're perhaps interested in buying. There are uh, in disequilibrium resources that are allocated to A when they could be allocated to B even though the value that is attached to A by people who are making bids in the market uh, is less than the value that is attached to B. Again, value attached in the sense of the bids that people are willing to make, uh, people are making uh, in the market. In disequilibrium also, there are highly valued resources, say a set of resources Z, which which are used to produce a particular product A, when less highly valued resources, say the set of resources X instead of Z, could do that job of producing A just as well. And also in disequilibrium, there's institutional failure. There are some institutions, laws and regulations, for example, which, if altered or abolished, would solve problems that people have readily identified as problems but uh, which continue on because of the institutional failure. Now the key insight of market process analysis is that in all of those situations that I listed, and one could uh, talk about different uh, additional forms in which disequilibrium occurs, in every one of those situations, there's a profit opportunity. There's a profit opportunity for someone who is alert enough to spot the nature of the disequilibrium and to take advantage of that by uh, uh, buying low and selling high in brief, although I'll have more to say about that uh, later on, or by uh, setting up an alternative uh, institutional arrangement such as as Walter Bloch uh, talked about earlier, restrictive covenants, perhaps, to, to take care of uh, the uh, tastes and preference differences amongst people. Um, anyone, uh, an entrepreneur who, who recognizes uh, such problems and who acts on them is going to get rich. If his perceptions are correct, he's going to get rich. The unintended consequence of successful entrepreneurship that is unintended as far as the entrepreneur is concerned, is that the problems or the dis- disequilibria are diminished. We are all uh, beneficiaries, if you will, of uh, positive externalities uh, uh, from, from the uh, role of entrepreneurs in the free market system. All they intend is to get rich. The rest of us benefit from more coordination of our economic activities than we otherwise would have when the um, entrepreneurs are correct in their perceptions. When entrepreneurs are mistaken in their perceptions, and there's nothing in market process analysis that says that entrepreneurship is always successful. When entrepreneurs are mistaken in their perceptions, they will do things perhaps which are disequilibrating. That's true. But also in, within that context, those are, the, those are the times in which they're losing. The incentive is to do those things which have positive externalities for the rest of us rather than uh, neg- negative uh, externalities. Now, <clears throat> it's useful, I think, to, to uh, put up on the board a, a conceptual framework for understanding uh, the role of uh, entrepreneurship in the markets. Uh, Kersner says that a market for product X is best viewed really as two sub-markets. There is the input market and the output market. And in the input market, there are sellers and buyers. The sellers in the input market are, of course, resource owners, people who uh, own Uh, their own human capital, and therefore who own the labor services that their human capital uh, empower them to perform, people who own physical capital, uh, uh, tools and buildings and uh, uh, including perhaps even financial capital. Uh, We call those people, of course, capitalists, it is important in this analysis to, to, to uh, note that there is a distinction, an important analytical distinction to be made between capitalists on the one hand and entrepreneurs on the other. In this analysis, capitalists are merely resource owners. They are people who, for whatever reason, for whatever historical reason, own a physical or financial capital which Uh, is useful in the process of production and exchange. These capitalists, as well as these owners of human capital who are selling labor services, as well as owners of land, where land means, of course, all gifts of nature, not just unimproved real estate, but uh, natural waterfalls and wild animals and so on, all gifts of nature. These uh, people who own these uh, resources that are useful in production and exchange are the sellers in the input market. The buyers in the input market are the entrepreneurs. It is the job of entrepreneurs to assemble, and that's that's a nice way that Israel puts it that I think is uh, quite effective. To assemble the necessary resources, uh, to carry out uh, production plans. Now, of course, entrepreneurs assemble the necessary resources, how? By entering into voluntary exchange hiring contracts with owners of resources. Voluntary exchange hiring contracts with uh, sellers of labor services, for example. Voluntary exchange hiring contracts with sellers of of the uh, services of financial capital. Voluntary exchange contracts uh, uh, with sellers of uh, the use of uh, land. In in all of these cases, uh, the entrepreneur uh, bargains and negotiates uh, contracts uh, so that the resources become available to the use of the entrepreneur, or or available for the use of the entrepreneur, and then what does the entrepreneur do with them? Having assembled the necessary resources, the uh, process of production is then uh, carried out. Now, why do entrepreneurs do such things, or under what circumstances do entrepreneurs want to assemble a set of resources to carry out some plan of production? Well, the answer is really quite obvious, I should think. They want to do it because they want to get rich. They observe a price discrepancy that that, that, uh, has existed but nobody has caught on to at this moment because, uh, or at least if other people have caught on to it, the price discrepancy still exists, Um, a price discrepancy between the total outlay that is necessary to assemble the resources by voluntary exchange contracts from the resource owners on the one hand, that's the price of the product in its input form, and the perceived price of the product in the output form, that is when the production plan has been executed and there is in fact something to sell. That's a price discrepancy. There's an opportunity to buy low and sell high. Enter into voluntary exchange contracts with sellers of uh, resources. Uh, spend less money in doing so than you think you can capture when you have the final product to sell. That, that difference, that discrepancy is a pure residual claim, is the, is the reward that the entrepreneur, reward's not a good word, is the, is the payoff uh, that the entrepreneur hopes to get from such activity. Now, there's an unintended consequence that goes with uh, success in such enterprise. First generation entrepreneurs, those who are first alert to the opportunity presented by that price discrepancy, will make some profits. The very fact that they have assembled the resources, that they have uh, uh, carried out the production plan calls the attention of other people, the not-so-alert. I don't want to say the dim, but the not-so-alert that this is a worthwhile plan to pursue. And as more entrepreneurs, chasing that residual claim, bid for resources to assemble with the owners of those resources resource prices are going to be rising. And as more and more entrepreneurs are attempting to sell the result, uh, the, the output that results from the production plan, that will have the effect of decreasing prices uh, in, in that output market. And, in, and the result, of course, is that that price discrepancy, that was the occasion for the profit opportunity in the first place, narrows, diminishes, in the limit, goes to zero. Right? That's the unintended consequence that the that the profit diminishes. Um, but with the profit diminishing, let's say that let's say that we have the limiting case where the, where where the entrepreneurship uh, uh, process has has been going on and has, uh, is complete and we have attained equilibrium, I hasten to add there is nothing in market process analysis that requires that equilibrium actually be sh- uh, attained. The only requirement is that there be a tendency toward equilibrium. But let's say that, that the limiting case of uh, actual uh, uh, zero residual claim is attained. What is that state? Well, that's the equilibrium state that uh, neoclassical economists uh, either assume in what they are doing, in in the work that they are doing, or think that it's so obvious that it will be attained uh, that they don't have to pay any attention whatsoever to the process by which it is attained. you could say, what about that argument that, the neo, that some neoclassical economists have that the process is obvious? We don't have to spend a lot of time talking about what goes on in disequilibrium. We know people are going to be chasing profit. Let's not focus on, on what goes on in disequilibrium. Rather, let's look at the comparative statics of, uh, of uh, equilibrium states. Well, there are important. Maybe other reasons as well, but in my mind, there are important policy implications uh, that emerge from the uh, attention to the entrepreneurial process itself. For example, Paul Samuelson located the foundations. Say I never learned. Located the foundations of economic analysis in bordered Hessians. And correspondence principles, and so on and on. Yet, Paul Samuelson, having chosen to emphasize that form of economic analysis, was unembarrassed to say that, inasmuch as a successful speculator has merely noticed something a fraction of a second before someone else, that really. Any gains that come from that early noticing could safely be confiscated without uh, any cost whatsoever. Now, Samuelson actually did say that. Attention to the process of entrepreneurship, the process of attaining uh, this equilibrium, uh, the, uh, of coping with disequilibrium. equilibrium. Uh, points out mistakes that we can avoid, policy mistakes that we can avoid. Another example of the same thing, you know, in, in, uh, in, perfect, uh, in perfect competition, uh, it, is, uh, it is said that, uh, and, and rightly so, that there's no role for advertising. Well, perfect competition is perfect, isn't it? Therefore, let's make the real world like it would be with perfect competition. Let's ban advertising. Now, no market process analyst, whatever, makes such an idiotic statement because a market process analyst who focuses on disequilibrium states, imperfect information, appreciates the role of advertising uh, in in what is going on in those disequilibrium states. Avoiding mistakes, if nothing else, uh, showing us how to avoid mistakes is sufficient justification in my mind, sufficient justification uh, for paying attention uh, in some detail to what goes on in disequilibrium. Uh, Let me finish this, Um, uh, it's already implicit in what what I said, but in the output market, There are also sellers and buyers, and the sellers, of course, are the entrepreneurs. It is the entrepreneur or entrepreneurship that provides the link between input and output markets. The buyers in the output markets, of course, are consumers, consumers uh, broadly uh, interpreted to be those who buy. those for whom the production is originally uh, intended. Now there are uh, actually three kinds of entrepreneurship. In the 1973 book, Competition and Entrepreneurship, Kersner uh, talked almost exclusively of arbitrage. Uh, in the his 1985 book, the um, uh, discovery in the capitalist process, Uh, he, uh, because of the prodding of uh, several people at various uh, um, Austrian conferences uh, and also in print, uh, brought into his analysis two other forms of uh, entrepreneurship, namely speculation and innovation. So uh, let me um, uh, talk about those three forms of entrepreneurship and say something about the roles that they have to play. Arbitrage, of course, is the simplest of all cases. Arbitrage is a situation where there is a a thing, X, and there's more than one price for that thing. The price is $10 over there and it's $5 over there. At a moment in time, for a specific thing, there are two different prices. In such, uh, in a situation of such price discrepancies, uh, there's a profit opportunity. The opportunity is for the someone to buy at the low price or close to that existing low price, and to sell uh, at the higher price. Now the question emerges in that case of simple arbitrage: Is the uh, Is the uh, limit, uh, is the final outcome of that a a zero price discrepancy? Well, that depends upon how you want to treat the transactions costs involved in carrying out the process of of, uh, buying low and selling high. Um, Kirzner says that you that the low price, he, he uses the, t- the term low price to include all of the costs that are necessary in taking advantage of whatever price discrepancies are involved. So having included in the, in the low price, the transactions costs involved in executing uh, the entrepreneurial function, then, of course, the limiting case is the price discrepancy uh, totally disappears. If instead you want to separate out that transactions cost and talk about the the low price and the high price. Then of course the limiting case, the, the, the end result of a simple arbitrage is a price discrepancy that is no greater than the cost involved in taking advantage of it. In my mind, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, I must be missing something, but I think that, that debate, and I've heard it debated about what's the best way to, to think of that, I think that debate is much ado about nothing. Now in the 1973 book, Kirzner under the rubric of arbitrage included the case that I talked about earlier, where the, where the opportunity to buy low and sell high was, was indirect, where you buy low in the form of a, of a set of assembled resources and you sell high uh, in, in the form of a set of a finished product. He called that a a simple price discrepancy, almost exactly the same as as the direct arbitrage. Uh, He didn't refer to it as speculation, Uh, and uh, he uh, uh, wasn't, I must uh, say, at that point, uh, very clear on what the uh, role of the capitalist uh, would be uh, in that kind of what I call indirect arbitrage. That is, the, the, the question emerges, who, who is the risk bearer in, in that sort of indirect arbitrage? Is it the entrepreneur or, uh, or is it uh, the capitalist who's the risk bearer? Well, Kirzner, uh, in, in insisting upon entrepreneurship, as uh, being a function that doesn't require any resources at all except alertness, uh, said in in many different ways that the entrepreneur is not the risk bearer, that in some sense the uh, capitalist is the risk uh, bearer. Um, And uh, I never really did understand that argument, but he has modified that now because in the in the later book, in the 1985 book, he talks about speculation of two types. He identifies speculation of, of uh, type A, we can call it, as this thing that he earlier referred to as, or that I am characterizing as indirect arbitrage. He says, yes, uh, there is risk now involved in this kind of arbitrage, assembling resources and then hoping to be able to sell the final product at a price that's higher than what you had to pay for the assembly resources. Why? Because time is involved. It's not like buying low and and, and selling high right now today. The production process requires time. And so uh, we must admit of the possibility that the perceived end price uh, may not be what the entrepreneur thought it was going to be. Now, the entrepreneur has entered into voluntary exchange contracts with the resource owners. Those voluntary exchange contracts give to those resource owners, typically, contractual claims. The entrepreneur is the residual claimant, and as residual claimant, has to be thought of as the risk bearer. Now, the other uh, type B form of, um, of speculation that... Uh, that uh, Kirzner talks about as uh, entrepreneurship is the, the kind that involves uh, anticipated intertemporal price discrepancies for the same good. That is, uh, the, the example that Alchin always liked to use was coffee. Uh, we have a, a given amount of coffee that has already been harvested. It's in the barn. It's, uh, we have a normal supply right now, but the newly growing crop is wiped out by a, a coffee bug. Uh, That means that the prospective future price is going to be very high. We could go on to consume the same amount of coffee right now because we have the normal supply right now, but that would mean that next year we would have to uh, not drink much coffee at all. Uh, And so speculators uh, perceiving this prospective price discrepancy uh, will add to the normal consumption demand now a hoarding demand, if you want to call it hoarding, that will raise the price today that will make available additional supplies next period, and so the prospective future price uh, next period is lower than otherwise would be, and the effect, again, is to narrow a price discrepancy, in this case, an intertemporal price discrepancy. Okay, that's, that's speculation, that's, that's entrepreneurship, that's the pursuit of profit from price discrepancy, whether it's a price discrepancy today or a prospective price discrepancy over time, it's it's uh, straight entrepreneurship. Uh, Israel gave a uh, a nice example of uh, how uh, there can be coordination of economic activities uh, at the moment, uh, but the but from a larger perspective, the the economic activities uh, could be discoordinated, and because of that discoordination, there is an entrepreneurial uh, profit opportunity. And his example was this. Involving natural gas, he said, it, it's it's conceivable that today's price uh, for natural gas uh, may be uh, uh, a coordinating price, a price that uh, that uh, brings together the amounts uh, supplied and demand uh, demanded at the moment. Uh, however. The today's price could, in fact, be too could be too uh, high. I think is the way that the example that he constructed could be too high in light of a uh, change, uh, the discovery of uh, new natural gas sources. That's the simplest case. Okay. So um, uh, that there there is a price discrepancy. Uh, that that can't be detected by existing shortages or existing supplies that requires a longer uh, uh, perspective uh, to identify the price discrepancy and and to act on it. That's speculation, he calls it, a form of entrepreneurship. And then there is innovation, the third form of entrepreneurship. Innovation is the discovery of unsuspected uh, resource and uh, technical feasibilities, is the the way that uh, Israel defines it. Um, It involves the creation of new output or new methods of of producing existing things that are produced, new marketing strategies, new organizations, new uh, 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 rules and regulations and other institutions. This, this innovation requires the courage and vision to create the future in an uncertain world. That sh- sounds very Schumpeterian, doesn't it? In the uh, original 1973 book, uh, Kersner made a distinction, I guess that's a fair word to say, Uh, or uh, pointed out a difference between his view of entrepreneurship and Schumpeter's uh, um, view uh, of entrepreneurship. To Schumpeter, the view of the entrepreneur uh, was to, uh, the role of the entrepreneur was to uh, destroy equilibrium, to upset equilibrium. Uh, Entrepreneurship was a process of creative destruction. uh, To Kirzner, on the other hand, entrepreneurship is a, uh, a process that equilibrates, it doesn't destroy equilibrium, it nudges markets toward more coordination than otherwise would exist. Um, now, on a second reading, uh, looking at the language that he has now adopted to describe this third form of entrepreneurship, this innovation, it seems to me that, uh, that he has, uh, accepted, at least at some level, uh, the, uh, the disequilibrating role of entrepreneurship uh, that is the innovative type of entrepreneurship. However, um, those who are fond of the view that the world is always in disequilibrium and has no, and has no equilibrating uh, forces at work at all. I should not take much comfort from that uh, acknowledgement. Innovation can be destructive of an existing equilibrium, if you want to put it that way. Another way that I prefer to put it is that what appears to be an equilibrium at the moment really isn't an equilibrium vis-a-vis this hitherto unnoticed opportunity to innovate. Acting on this hitherto unnoticed opportunity to innovate does nudge the market in the same way that arbitrage does, does nudge the market toward more uh, coordination. Or you can do it the other way. You can say that sure, innovation upsets equilibrium, but there are these other two forms of uh, entrepreneurship the simple arbitrage and speculation, which are inherently equilibrating. So there are, no matter which way you look at it, the acknowledgment of innovation uh, presents no, uh, no problems for those who realize that if, it's, if we're going to be able to have any economic analysis at all, uh, we must be able to postulate uh, at least a tendency toward, uh, toward equilibrium. Uh, the, the, the contrary view, of course, that, is a, that has been made uh, famous or infamous depending upon your point of view by Shackle and by Lachman, and more recently by my friends, I think, uh, <laughs> O'Driscoll and Rizzo, uh, I, I, I think are, 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 are on the one hand uh, wrong and on the other hand, uh, are are destructive of uh, any kind of chance of having systematic economic analysis at all. I'll have more to say about that when I talk about equilibrium on on Wednesday. Now a couple of uh, uh, postscripts, if you will. Curzon makes a distinction between the capitalist and the entrepreneur as roles, that is. There is an entrepreneurial role that is distinct from the role of the capitalist. The role of the capitalist is merely the role of a resource owner who makes, who makes resources available to entrepreneurs who have, who have spotted these profit opportunities. Having said that there are distinct roles does not imply that there must be distinct separate people who are playing them. It is true that a person who is a resource owner called a capitalist, or for that matter, a resource owner of any description, uh, can be uh, an entrepreneur. It's just that there are two separate hats. Uh, I am, after some fashion, a piano player. And when I'm playing the piano, I'm wearing a different hat from when I'm giving a lecture. Same person, different role. And it's the same thing with the distinction between uh, capitalists and, and entrepreneurs. Henry Ford was a capitalist who assembled resources from other capitalists. As entrepreneur, he was a capitalist who owned resources, but he was an entrepreneur who saw an opportunity to assemble resources from others as well as from himself to produce the Model T. That was straight uh, entrepreneurship. But there's nothing. There's nothing inherent in, in entrepreneurship that ties it to the capitalist. That's, that's the the point. Uh, uh, people um, uh, do people learn from mistakes. How how uh, how good are people at uh, uh, putting things that are wrong uh, right? Well, you see, the the theory of entrepreneurship. Uh, illustrates that, that or, or I think puts into sharp focus the fact that it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how, how clever uh, individual, uh, all individual people are. Most people can be passive price taking loafers who merely uh, enter into uh, contracts on terms that are. Are, uh, that seem to be acceptable that are offered by other people. Um, it's not necessary that owners of capital or owners of labor or owners of land uh, have the, the kind of knowledge that is necessary uh, in, at some point to, uh, for the um, uh, equilibrating process. As there are some individuals who have the knowledge, who have who have, who have uh, uh, become alert to it, who have noticed the knowledge, those people, in pursuit of profit, will present the opportunity to the, the opportunities to the passive ones, and indeed, if uh, there are uh, profit opportunities there, if the perceptions are correct, uh, the the uh, beneficial effects. Uh, for the rest of us, beneficial in the sense of acquiring more coordination of economic activities, uh, will be enjoyed. We don't require in market process analysis that everybody be on their toes. We only require that some people be on their toes presenting the opportunities to the others. Now, a distinction has to be made between search Activity on the one hand, and alertness uh, on the other. See, in, uh, in search theory, it was George Stigler, of course, that, uh, that wrote the seminal article in, in search theory, and uh, Stigler, there's this famous quote from Stigler, he says, uh, information costs are the costs of transportation from ignorance to omniscience, and seldom can a trader afford to make the entire trip. Uh, uh, very uh, clever at uh, use of words, not quite as clever as Roger Garrison, but uh, still pretty clever in use of words. Um, to Stigler and to, th- and, and to all of those who, uh, who uh, participate in the uh, search literature, including Armin Elchin, search has to do with looking for something that you know you don't know. That is, there, there's, there's something that, you, that uh, well, for example, you've been laid off from a job. Right? You know that you've got to find a new one. You, the, you, you set off on a purposive program, looking for, collecting information. The extent to which you carry on that program or the way you formulate that program, of course, depends on your perception of the costs and benefits involved in that activity. But you are looking for that which you know you do not know. Uh, It's hard, you don't have any regrets. There's no ignorance that you regret in search theory Uh, in the following sense. If you don't know something, one could say, well, that's simply because you have weighed the costs Uh, against the benefits of acquiring the information and you simply have decided that it's not worth it. So it's rational ignorance, it's ignorance that you have chosen. You don't regret it, you wish that search costs were lower or you wish that the benefits were higher but they're not as you see them and so you choose your ignorance. That's the rational ignorance that the people in public choice always refer to. See, uh, In public choice it is said that voters are rationally ignorant because they recognize that their vote doesn't make one whit of a difference unless everyone else ties within the context of a majority uh, rule, uh, decision rule. Uh, And so uh, the benefit that comes uh, from becoming informed so that you cast an intelligent vote on something is pretty small because your vote doesn't make any difference. And the costs are rather huge, I mean, there are a whole lot of uh, uh, policy issues that uh, people Uh, might be interested in pursuing and finding out about, and uh, it takes time and effort and diligence and uh, perspicacity and everything else to do it. Why bother? Voters choose rationally to be ignorant, and of course in the public choice uh, literature that gives rise to the special interest effect and all the rest of it. That's not the kind of ignorance or misperception that is key, that is crucial in market process analysis, in Kirzner's market process analysis. The kind of ignorance uh, or lack of information that, that, is, that we refer to in market process analysis is, uh, it's, it, it's stuff that you don't know you don't know. Right? It, would never, it, it just hasn't occurred to you even to think of looking at the costs and benefits of acquiring the information, it's just something that you haven't, you haven't thought about, you haven't noticed that it might be worthwhile. Uh, to think about. Okay. Um, failure to notice is what the entrepreneur takes advantage of. Failure of others to notice presents the opportunity to the entrepreneur who does notice the price discrepancies or the innovation opportunities. Okay. Failure to notice. Uh, of, of, this, of this sort involves ignorance that, uh, that you don't regret, uh, that you do regret, that you do regret. Because when the entrepreneur first, uh, when the first entrepreneur acts on something that you could well have acted on if you had just been lucky enough or alert enough to, to notice, what's your response? Why didn't I think of that, right? Hit yourself on the head, why didn't I think of that? Um, there, you, you, can, you can regret not noticing things. Now that kind of information failure is, a, is, a, uh, it is, is very real. Um, one way to illustrate it, uh, the, the failure to notice is to ask yourself, for example, how many times have you gone out a door and pushed when it said pull? Right? The information costs involved are zero, but you don't notice. Okay? Now, in my review of the economics of time and ignorance by O'Driscoll and Rizzo, I took them to task, among other things, I took them to task uh, for using examples to illustrate their points that were unrelated to economics. So having done that as an example, I had better hasten to give a better example uh, of failure to notice, and it's from my own experience. It was in 1979, that Kirzner wrote his monograph for the Law and Economic Center at Miami uh, called um, The Perils of Regulation, a Market Process Approach. That that, uh, monograph has since been uh, reprinted in the 1985 volume, uh, Discovery in the Capitalist Process. I have spent a lot of time and effort pursuing uh, my main or uh, at least urgent interest in labor law and labor institutions and i did a monograph uh, which was published in 1984 i called uh, opportunity or privilege about uh, uh, american uh, labor law some history and uh, some problems created by the existing institutions I simply didn't notice that I could put those two things together, those two things that I knew so well, into a, a paper that applied the Kirzner's uh, perils of regulation, uh, which is based upon entrepreneurship analysis uh, to, to regulation, to the National Labor Relations Act. And it was Lou Rockwell, in fact. Who, who presented the opportunity for me uh, to notice, or at least who, 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 who gave me the nudge uh, to notice, because he offered to pay me some money to write an article. Uh, <laughs> and having noticed that I could put those two things together, since then, I've, I have done four papers. See? Now, there's, there's a profit, there was a profit opportunity in there that I, that I simply failed to notice and take advantage of, the search costs were zero. That failure to notice, I genuinely uh, regretted. Although fortunately it, uh, uh, not all the costs were sunk and uh, it was, uh, the, the situation has, uh, has been uh, remedied. <laughs> right. Well, uh, if Austrian, uh, economics uh, is going to uh, present a viable alternative to neoclassical orthodoxy, uh, or if let's put it let's put it the other way let's if the uh, players in the neoclassical orthodoxy are to come to think of Austrian economics as uh, as something viable as something worthwhile. I am convinced that it is in this area, this this area of entrepreneurship and its role in uh, disequilibrium states and its role in equilibrating processes uh, that gives us the best hope of of, uh, receiving the approval or, or at least the respectful attention of the overwhelming majority. Uh, of uh, practicing economists today. Thank you.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question that may sound a little facetious, but it's not intended to be that. It has to do with your definition of uh, uh, capitalist uh, being an owner of resources, mm-hmm. and since the USSR state is an owner of resources, why shouldn't that country be be uh, referred to as as a capitalist country, or as a capitalist, as a socialist?
0: Yeah. Well, you can, you can call it whatever you want to call it. I, uh, I remind you that the word capitalist and capitalism, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was coined by Marx, and it was, it was a, a term that was used pejoratively to suggest the dominance of owners of capital over the owners of all other resources. Um, uh, I don't care if you, if, you, if you wish to call the, uh, the, the, the Soviet government capitalist because they own capital uh, uh, or not, uh, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing I, ha- I have no vested interest in the word capitalist. As a matter of fact, I wish it had never been used, it was abused so much that I wish it had never been used. Uh, the key role is the role of the entrepreneur. I'd be willing to talk about resource owners in general without having this special name for this one kind of resource owner called capitalist. So I don't care what you call them.
1: I think my problem is that the word capitalism is used rather loosely.
0: Capitalism is used to refer, by some people, is used to refer to uh, free enterprise, with tariffs, without tariffs, with subsidies, without subsidies. I mean, it's used uh, in whatever way the speaker wishes to use it. It has lost any uh, concrete content as far as I can see. Yeah. I missed the distinction you drew between the search activity and the alertness activity. Uh, In the search activity, you are consciously looking for something that you know you don't have or that you know you don't know. Alertness is rather a a business of, well, let me amplify the first part. In seeking out what you know you don't know, in attempting to discover what you know you don't know, you make decisions about how to go about it, for how long to go about it, on the basis of your perceptions of the costs and benefits of search. It's all straightforward, cost-benefit analysis at the margin. In the the case of uh, alertness, search costs are zero. Failure to notice something is failure to notice that which is staring you in the face, which for some reason you just have ignored. It doesn't require any planned search. It just requires waking up. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's that latter kind of, uh, of uh, ignorance, the ignorance that comes from the failure to notice, that gives rise to the possibility of regret. You see, in Stigler's model, it is irrational to talk about regretting not knowing things. Everybody has always this, the right amount of ignorance based upon, based upon their individual perceptions of costs and benefits. The only regret that's possible therein, I suppose, is uh, the discovery that your perceptions of costs and benefits were inaccurate. If I understand it yeah. correctly, then, if you're a commodity trader watching for price to drop down and take advantage, <coughs> that would still be a searching activity as opposed to just being alert to take advantage of an opportunity? Yes. Right. So, I mean, that's, that is a particular, in that case, there is a, a, a particular uh, knowledge transmission mechanism which you have adopted to examine, to give you the information that you know you don't have and that you want. So that would be purpose of search, right. Even though I would feel I'm just alert for opportunities to do the search. I guess the word alert is what troubles me, because that, that connotes to me that I, I'm there conscious being available, making myself available, as opposed to being blissfully, or it's almost serendipitous, uh, the other thing. Um, yes, I, I, I take the point. Um, uh, you see, this is a, a alert, uh, Kershner defines alertness in one place as a motivated, how does he put it? A motivated propensity to to notice that which it is in your interest to notice, okay? Now you're sitting there as a commodity trader and uh, uh, you are, I'm just thinking on my feet here, there's not a situation which you know you don't know about that you want to uncover there is instead a an ongoing changing situation which you are hopefully attuned to maybe that would fall under the rubric alertness i don't know i I don't know if israel would accept it as under the rubric of alertness or not but i but i see a difference between that kind of uh, knowledge acquisition process and for example job search which is uh Obviously, the the Stigler type of uh, activity. Yeah.
2: Given the the, the subjective nature of cost, how can we really make that rigorous distinction between search and and the alertness? Because uh, being available all the time, being on your toes, being informed, how can we say this is costless? Since the cost may be psychic, it may not be expressed in pecuniary or any other real terms. Um,
0: Well, whether you want to... uh, uh, I had this discussion with a colleague of mine at Cal State, uh, Steve Schmansky, who is a Chicago, UCLA type, uh, allegedly free market uh, Walter uh, <laughs> type. And, and, he, and he says that, um, uh, it, it's exactly that. He, he read Kirzner's uh, book, the 1973 book, and he said, you know, I agree with a whole bunch of stuff with what he's saying, but I don't understand why it has to be put in these different words. I mean, after all, it's just a case of information costs, and it's just a case of subjective perceptions of of information costs, things that you don't notice, you don't know. The reason you don't notice is because there's some cost barrier to it. But then when I asked him to explain to me the cost barrier involved in my failure to notice putting those two articles together to make more articles. uh, he couldn't describe it in terms of a cost barrier. So I think, I think there really is something to things that we don't know, even though it would be costless to know them. That's alertness. Yeah.
2: I have uh, several comments. Uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, mention the fact that there's a friend of mine who now
1: teaches at UCLA when uh, Israel Curry's book first came out. He was asked to be a referee for the
2: University of Chicago Press and he, uh, he rated the book up and down, and, and his final coup de gras was that, this book uh, has shows no uh, knowledge of any of the modern tools of economic analysis. Anyway, it didn't have much of math. Or right,
0: didn't have any math, to its credit. It <laughs> <laughs> had the page numbers on it. That
2: was <laughs> 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 yeah. so That's sort of an indication of where the UCLA-Chicago mentality is to Austrian economics. Right. Uh, I, when I explain this search model, sometimes I, I <coughs> it into a three-stage model that the first one was this assumption of full information, which is just uh, beyond the pale ridiculous. ridiculous and know, we have infinite knowledge. And that Stigler is a, a vast improvement on that. I mean, that's pretty grim. Stigler is a bit better. And the idea here is that you have a marginal cost to search each day. It costs you more and more to search and a marginal gain when you get lower and lower prices. And what you're searching for is like a new job or a new car or a new house or things like that. You know full well what you're searching for. And that's decent for that kind of a thing. But then Curzon comes up with things like a pet rock or the hula hoop. You know, you're just walking along peacefully, you had no idea of a hula hoop. You weren't searching for it. See, the search model can't apply to things that you know not the existence of. So it's not so much alertness, it's you know, complete obliviousness <laughs> I mean, to alertness is the, is no, no, the opposite. Part of the consumer. Oh, yes, yes. Completely oblivious to the prospect of a hula hoop. I mean, obviously, right, the right. Uh,
0: entrepreneur is alert to the
2: possibility that were the consumer acquainted with a hula hoop, he would grab it up. That, that's yeah. uh, I would uh, make a slight change in one of the things you said. It seems that the search costs for the hula hoop at all are not zero, but rather infinite. I think maybe you just had a slip of the tongue. It seems to me that, that a more accurate way to characterize it in that genre... Did I a, say there was zero? Yeah. I, I think it's probably a slip of the tongue, What you meant was probably at least See if, if you meant anything. Uh, that. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Um, I think that's that's a higher point. Just to say that from the point of view of the searcher who is not even looking for a rule
0: if you wanted to put it in that model. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I think I'd be willing to defend the notion that the that the that the idea is zero. Yeah, the cost is zero. Okay, well, we
2: disagree. Then. I think yeah. that a better way to characterize this would be to say it's infinite. It, it's well, but then if
0: if they were infinite, it, the idea would never occur to anyone. Right.
2: Well, not to anyone, just to the person who they're not going to occur to. <laughs>
0: oh, but the, but the, wait a minute. Sure, sure you can, all right, But I'm saying there's zero to the entrepreneur. I'm, so what I'm saying I'm saying zero search costs, so I mean to, rec- to the entrepreneur. That's yeah.
2: That's what i What I meant was infinite to
0: the uh, infinite to the dim-witted, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Several uh, uh, other points. Um,
2: one of them. Was uh, this thing about arbitrage in space versus in time? Yes. The arbitrage in space being that selling for five cents here and ten cents there, and you buy here and sell there. I think, strictly speaking, there is some time elapsed even in those cases. Not just uh, amassing factors of production to make a final good. That even when you go and you buy in this room to sell there, there is some. There is some time. time Sometimes there sure. is some risk. Uh, third point on this. Um, and point that you ended with that the process theory is the best part of Westernism in order to get the respect of the orthodox economists. You said something to that effect.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's that's well, just my uh, okay, well, guess.
2: That's, that's sort of troubling to me. Not because I disagree. It might well be that that is the most attractive element of Austrianism to them compared to other elements. But what I find troublesome about that is that it sort of implies that, that the process that we're involved in vis-a-vis the orthodox is to, get their respect.
0: And it seems to me it's uh, truly in a very negative sense. I mean
2: Israel person has this idea that the reason that they don't publish uh, Austrian stuff in the American Economic Review is that it's not good enough. You know, that, that somehow the Austrians haven't written a good article. Except maybe for Pink and Cowan. Well no like, but that's regarding an article in the AR. My view would be that it's very different. That it's sort of you're going into a jury where the uh, decision has already been made, and, they're guilty. and you're guilty of it, and
0: you just want out. Now, when they say that it isn't good enough, they're saying it, th- that the right tools aren't being used. There's no data, right? or there are no e- equations. If we're going to overcome that, uh, that fascination, infatuation with data and equations, we, ha- we have to have some, some hook. To attract their attention, and it's and this and the process of achieving equilibrium, which every orthodox economist knows, must be a part of the story. Even though they have not spent any time or effort in creating a version of that story, um, I think that's that's if if we have a good story to tell, uh, and if if we can we can demonstrate its applicability. Uh, that's where I think that uh, the orthodoxy will broaden its concept of what is good. I'm not making my
2: point clear. I agree with what you just said that if, if you took the five or ten aspects of Austrianism and you asked which is potentially most acceptable <coughs> to them, this might well be it. Right. I don't disagree with that at all. What I find disquieting is the underlying implicit premise that what we're engaged in here is a process of <coughs> Making things attractive to them. Now, what we're engaged in
0: is uh, error avoidance. And uh, uh, if we can get most economists to pay some attention to market process and entrepreneurship, then maybe we will have fewer economists who are writing destructive policy prescriptions. Okay, that's what we're about.
1: I'm not getting my point
0: out. <laughs> I guess not.
2: I'll have to try again over some slides. Let me just ask my last question, and that is, it's sometimes objected to the free enterprise system that under it, people can take unfair advantage of other people. Uh, I was having a big debate with some libertarian who said, yes, he agrees with the non-aggression and the non-fraud, but he wants to add one more thing, and that is, don't take unfair advantage of it. What does that mean? Well, for example, uh, and this is a point that Kruzner and I have had the, uh, tell Suppose there's a beleaguered city that- that's been surrounded by an enemy force, and I'm the first caravan in there with f- fresh food, and-, and right now food can sell for very high prices. But I know that there's another caravan and ten other caravans just over the next hill. And if I go in now and sell the wheat for a hundred dollars right. right. an ounce, right. yeah. I will in some be taking advantage of the lack of information of the believing citizens. What I ought to do yeah. is to tell them, hey, you know,
0: well, you don't really
2: have to pay me a thousand dollars an ounce because there are five other caravans that we seem to be coming and the price will go down. How do you stand that
0: Well uh I do I would not say that, that that you'd be taking advantage of people. As a matter of fact, it, it, having done that I just finished doing a paper uh first draft of a paper on on the right to work. It's an essay that I'm writing for a uh, for uh, Bill Hutt. Um, And in there, I I talk about the criteria for voluntary exchange. I mean, what must uh, be true about an exchange relationship if it qualifies for the adjective voluntary? And uh, one of the uh, uh, criteria was, this uh, no misrepresentation uh, statement. And in there, I specifically state that the ability to ferret out relative uh, information from others is no more equally distributed than is alertness or intelligence or any of the other endowments. Uh, the only condition that is required for an exchange, the information condition for an exchange to be voluntary, is that no one purposefully uh, uh, gets someone to believe that which he knows isn't true. Uh, not telling, not telling a person something that you know is true, in the absence of a direct question, "Is it true?" Uh, is perfectly consistent with voluntary exchange. I should think. Yeah.
2: More to also that. It's not unjust for the person to take advantage of his superior knowledge, even though, you know, because he knows that the caravan is coming the other guy is going. No. And of course, be nice to be sort of extra nice benevolence, to be told. No, yes, justice required yeah.
0: No. yeah. There's no, uh, there's no law against benevolence, but there's uh, there's nothing that requires it either. My, yes.
2: Um, I was. I noted here that a lot of the uh, the, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you're you trying to gather uh, an, an amount of information or, or see a possibility that nobody else sees, and then go around and solicit money and uh,
0: and other resources.
2: And other resources. Yes. Now, if you have no intention of actually doing what you're saying, you're just a con man.
0: Oh, that's fraud. I mean, that's-
2: But if you're <clears throat> unsuccessful, then you're if, you're, if your idea doesn't pan out-
0: If your idea doesn't pan out, then you, the entrepreneur, to the extent that you have, that, that your resource mm-hmm. owners with whom you have contracted have contractual claims, then uh, you're in big trouble, right? Because you don't have, you don't have the wherewithal to meet those contractual claims. No, Well, no, but you've got to make good on those contracts. A contractual claim means you will, at a date or under a certain set of circumstances, pay to person A so many dollars. That's part of the contract. Your plan is to pay that out of proceeds that you capture from a highly priced output, and it doesn't pan out. Your residual claim then is negative. You've got to to dip... uh, as, as uh, you're going to dip into your pocket to make good those, uh, uh, those contractual claims. You well,
2: know, Most entrepreneurs get the money from capitalists who usually are at the largest risk.
0: No, I, well, they it they depends have, on the contract have, with the capitalist.
2: They have a contract that says, I'm going to take your money and hope this idea works usually. It doesn't say- if,
0: if, it is, if it is a residual claim contract, if a capitalist makes available to me, the entrepreneur, the use of his capital, on a residual claim basis, you know, I split the proceeds with them or something of that sort, then that's true. The capital is also a risk, the capitalist is a risk bearer. But if the if the entrepreneur has assembled resources on the basis of contractual claim contracts, then the entrepreneur is the only risk bearer. Both, both types of contracts, in fact, are used. Yeah. Uh, two questions, two short questions you want both. Uh, Do I want one or both? Yeah. Uh, I'll take both. Okay. First question. Two parts. Does greater
1: disequilibrium
0: bring greater profits? If so, is it in the interests of entrepreneurs to create greater disequilibrium? Uh, (laughs) Larger price discrepancies are bigger profit opportunities than smaller price discrepancies. That's true. How can entrepreneurs? On the one hand, widen the price discrepancies, and on the other hand, benefit from them. The key is that when the action is taken to exploit whatever price discrepancies exist for whatever reason, the price discrepancies narrow. Okay? Good. Second question. Please comment. You're leading me down the primrose path. Yeah. (laughs) I'm practicing to be a professor. Okay. Please comment on Adam Smith's invisible hand. My goodness, um, gee, I don't know, in light of uh, Murray's talk last night, I hesitate to say anything good about Adam Smith. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I have, a, I have a five Adam Smith ties which I'm now going to turn in <laughs> in exchange for a Mises ties. Uh, but. Um, The invisible hand, (laughs) okay, Lou, (laughs) comment comment on the invisible hand, Um, I have always interpreted to be uh, the invisible hand notion, uh, no matter how Smith characterized it, but as I think of the invisible hand, as I understand Smith thought of it, it simply refers to what we have come to call unintended consequences. That is, the very notion of disequilibrium presenting a profit opportunity uh, which fuels the willingness of people to act in ways that, even though they don't intend it, have beneficial effects for others. Whether it is in Smith or not is one question. Whether it is a valid point is an entirely different question, and I think on that latter question it clearly is a valid point. Yeah.
1: I think you stated that without the process of equilibration, that there's no possible systematic study of economics. Exactly. Um, could you very briefly expand on what the crucial and important differences, differences
2: are between, say, you and Shackle or what, makes, what, what separates these?
0: It is the, uh, the, the um, it's precisely the question of, uh, are there any mechanisms within a voluntary exchange setting which we can count on to convert uh, this into situations of more coordination? Shackle says, I think unequivocally, no. That whatever coordination we have, it's by pure accident. It'd be pure luck. There are no systematic forces leading in that direction at all. Lachman, although less explicitly, agrees with that position, I think.
2: Why, why did they, they, they both support the free market, no. why they Well, I don't know
0: about Shackle, uh, uh, <laughs> whether he supports the free market or not. Uh, Lachman, uh, I suppose, would be called a, a free market supporter, but I, my, my claim to him would be that he has given up, in his position on this question of the tendency to equilibrium, he has given up the best arguments in favor of the free market. He can be an advocate of the free market, but he's, he, he has chosen to, uh, his, to present his advocacy on uh, on sand rather than rock. You see, if 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 there are no equilibrating tendencies, then anything is possible, and you make it up as you go along. I mean, that's the, the 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 historical you know the the uh, uh, the debate about uh, the role of theory in economics as opposed to the role of uh, history. You know, the uh, uh, methodenstride, I think, it was, was uh, called. Uh, was all about that that very issue. Is it possible to, to discover principles of universal applicability so that we can understand what happens? So uh, guiding principles that permit us to interpret what happens uh, uh, in, in the real world. Uh, to a historicist, in the worst form, there are no such general principles. All you can do toward understanding what happens is simply observe it as it goes on and make up a story that seems to work at the moment. See, so, I, you know, that's a crucial, uh, a crucial distinction.
2: you put Lachman
0: in that can? Uh, Lachman does not call himself a historicist. Lachman calls himself uh, uh, a proponent of economic theory. But uh, again, I just have to reiterate that uh, when you take the position that there are no systematic processes, equilibrating processes, then you don't have general principles of theory. So his, he, he speaks as an economist, he writes as a uh, theoretical anarchist, uh-huh. uh, yes.
2: Are the only contracts considered by Kirchner, the one where the entrepreneur assumes the risk? Because, said at least in the initial approach, Kersner assumes that all the risk is taken up by the capitalist, and the, the entrepreneur bears no risk at all. So-
0: well, yeah, that's right. Uh, see, Kersner uh, uh, went to great lengths, and again, this is a part of his approach that I really don't don't understand, and I, I don't think it's crucial to to un, uh, to the market process, and so I haven't. I don't bother with it too much, but he went to great lengths to say that entrepreneurship itself requires no resources, none. Uh, that alertness is not a resource. It's not a resource because you can't hire it. There's no such thing as more or less of it. Uh, and, and there were a whole list of things why you can't treat it as an ordinary resource. So entrepreneurship is, doesn't use resources because it doesn't use resources, it is, it is costless. And, uh, and therefore, doesn't involve risk. But that, th- it never did make sense to me because in assembling resources, it's true that an entrepreneur doesn't have to have any resources to take advantage of profit opportunities, but an o- of his own. An entrepreneur, qua entrepreneur, does have to assemble them from others. And in assembling from others is make, entering into contractual obligations that present risk. I, I don't know how, uh, how else to characterize it. So this is just a point of, there aren't very many things on which I disagree with with Kersner, but that's one uh, on which I do. Yes?
1: Professor Kersner carefully distinguishes between
0: an entrepreneurial insight
1: and acts upon entrepreneurial insights. Entrepreneurial insights involve assimilating bits of information in one's mind such that you can put inputs together in reality and then make a pure entrepreneurial profit. Now, the various risks that would be involved in entering into the contractual agreements are part of the bits of information that you'd be assimilating in your mind. So those are already included, but the perception of assimilating those bits of information together in a way they hadn't heard before been assimilated is costless. It's just a perception that occurs in your mind based upon one's natural ability and the circumstances.
0: Well, but, but, but the perception never results in profit unless it's acted upon, does it?
1: Yeah, but once the perception is made, the perception is translated into a plan of action, and the various risks that are part of the plan of action are already included in the perception. The pure entrepreneurial game is something above and beyond all the risks. No,
0: but, the, but gosh, is that just playing with words or not? Um, uh... Well,
1: no, you we have entrepreneurial insights in his mind, but for one reason or
0: another. It's true that entrepreneurial insights, per se, are riskless. That's, uh, uh, that, the entrepreneur bears no risk in, in, in concocting a plan, but in acting on the plan and actually pursuing the perceived profit opportunity, I don't see how risk can be avoided. Yeah, well,
1: okay, but you already know before you have the entrepreneurial insight. You don't
0: know, for one thing, way, because all you, do, all you have is perceptions of risk which could be falsified by events
1: you have the entrepreneurial insight. You know there are certain kinds of risks associated with certain kinds of contract. right? But those particular risks aren't themselves part of the entrepreneurial insight. The entrepreneur, well, they're part of the entrepreneurial insight, but they're not part of your entrepreneurial profit. The result is from
0: uh, <laughs> you know,
1: acting upon the entrepreneurial
0: insight. Your don't business don't do are
1: already being taken into consideration. There's something that you already know about. Thinker. And then the entrepreneurial insight is costless because it's a perception that yeah. occurs arranging this information in your mind, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. acting upon the perception is something, different. This is something different. All right.
0: So you 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 agree that, I think you agree, that when the entrepreneur does act, the entrepreneur bears risk.
1: Yes, but a businessman who's entering into contracts with another it, entrepreneur is also
0: doing this. Would
1: that entrepreneurship is analytically distinguished by a person from um, entering into contracts? I
0: suppose two people enter into contracts. It's what you're. Uh, re, yeah, yeah, it's your so definition you of entrepreneurship well, that you're. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It is true that in my mind. <laughs> what? Did you
2: guys take this up over beer? Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. One more question? I <laughs> guess not. Thank you. Right.